So Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And he's known that for good reason. He's called that for good reason. Because the book of Jeremiah, on the whole, is not a very cheerful book. But then, Jeremiah didn't prophesy at a cheerful time. He was born somewhere around the end of Judah's worst king, uh, Manasseh. And his job was to prophesy Judah's impending defeat and exile to Babylon. And he was to prophesy it to the generation to which it happened. He was actually going to tell the people who were going to get carried away. His message was unpopular. It was opposed and he was persecuted for what he said, as we'll see. But actually, as as we go on, we'll find out that his message was spot on. What he said was what happened. And he kept going despite all this persecution. He kept going because actually he was set aside since before his birth for this role, as we read in chapter 1 and we sort of alluded to in our first song. He was a prophet that was chosen to come and do this, and he was called as a prophet as a young man. And right from the word go, you see there in chapter 1 from the, the verses that we have read, right from the word go, his message was that destruction was coming from the north. Destruction was going to come, uh, and invaders were going to come to the land of Judah. And that's the message really throughout the whole book. It's a bit tricky to follow in places, partly because it's slightly out of chronological order at points. It sort of jumps around, we can tell that by the kings that he tells you uh, about. It's more a compendium of his works than a chronological account. So it's got prophecies, it's got letters, and it's got history all mixed up in the book. So we're going to look at under four headings, just following the flow uh, of the book. So first of all, Israel has broken the covenant and will go into exile. This is mainly chapters 2 to 10. This whole section, this whole first section of the book, reads like a damning charge sheet against Israel. God has been kind to them. God has been faithful to them. And yet, the kingdom of Judah has played the harlot. They've been the floozy. They've been flipping between Egypt and Assyria as lovers and not remaining faithful to the Lord. And this is what was happening in history during Jeremiah's day. Judah was under threat as as superpowers began to develop during this period around it. We haven't got time to do a history lesson, but basically Judah was stuck in the middle between Egypt and Assyria, and then Egypt and Babylon. And they went asking for protection from one or the other, depending on who was attacking them. They sort of jumped between the two different nations. And Jeremiah's picture language, which is quite explicit, they they hoard themselves out to whomever they could for protection, instead of trusting in the Lord for their protection. And he accuses them eventually of being even worse than their sister nation, Israel, the northern kingdom, who would go into exile in Assyria. Jeremiah calls them to repent as a nation, otherwise exile will happen for them. But his call would ultimately go unheeded. And as Jeremiah prophesied, they will go into exile. All the way through this, the people would not listen. Instead, they trusted in outward things. So, for example, they trusted in the temple as being evidence that they were safe. So, if you've got a Bible, Jeremiah 7, 3-4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
almost wonder if that's sort of like a worship song that he used to sing, you know, repeat the same thing over and over again. But the meaning of it was this. No way will God kick us out. There's no way that God can take us away from here. No way will he let us be pillaged because this is the place of the temple. There's no way he's going to let that happen. They were trusting in, in the temple, but God was saying, no, that's not going to save you. They were trusting in circumcision. Not just the New Testament issue in Galatians and the like, but Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon and Moab, and all who dwell in the deserts, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. He's saying that you may think that you're circumcised, but you're not circumcised where it counts, in your hearts. And really they had forsaken God and they had sought their security and their sustenance elsewhere. Jeremiah memorably puts it like this in chapter 2, chapter 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What he's saying there is that Judah is in a state. They've turned away from God, they're trying to go it alone, but actually what will happen is they will go into exile. And unsurprisingly, not everybody likes this message. So secondly, secondly, the message and its messenger is opposed, or are opposed, uh, chapters 11 to 29. In chapter 11, Jeremiah repeats his message, and it becomes clear that the people at this time were preaching quite the opposite, really. They were saying, no, 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 we're safe. And they wanted Jeremiah to shut up. He mentions death threats from the men of Ammonoth, which if you were listening in the opening chapter, that's his hometown. A prophet really does have no honour in his own country. Jeremiah cries out to God in chapter 12, complaining that his wicked opponents seem to be prospering, they seem to be doing better. But God reminds him what lies ahead and in a series of shockingly visual prophecies. He's told of a loincloth that he's to bury and ruin to show that Judah will be ruined. He's told about vats of wine to symbolise the drunkenness that God will send on the nation so that they bump into each other in a drunken stupor. He speaks of them again like a prostitute who we will shame and expose. He makes a yoke and puts it on to symbolise the yoke of Babylon that they will be under. He tells them that the Lord will send sword and famine and pestilence against them. But up come the other prophets and contradict him. The prophets of the land lie and say, no, disaster is coming, we'll be absolutely fine. But disaster is coming, and the Lord won't turn back from this. He is the potter, they are the clay, chapter 18. He can do with them as he sees fit. Now at this point, war begins with Babylon, and Zedekiah, who is the king at this point, sends envoys to Jeremiah to inquire what will happen. Well, Jeremiah, in typical fashion, denounces the royal family uh, one by one. But he does speak of a righteous branch that will arise from David, one who will come and finally rule the people fully. He prophesies that there will be an exile, but it will last only 70 years, which of course is exactly what happens. But as you can imagine, again, this message did not make him very popular. 
And he took flat for the message from his own people. He's persecuted in chapter 15. There are plots against him in chapter 18. He's beaten up and put in stocks by the son of a temple official in chapter 20. They break the yoke that he's put around his neck and accuse him of lying. He's threatened with death by the people, by the priests, and by other prophets. It's not a nice time uh, for Jeremiah. It's not a good uh, experience that he has of telling the truth. But he is spared. Uriah, another prophet of the Lord, though, seemingly with a similar message, is put to death. As if almost to remind us what could happen. These were not easy times for true prophets. And the section finishes then with a letter to those who have already been taken into exile at this point. Which contains what is now globally apparently the best known verse of the Bible. And it is the one that I've actually preached on. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. But of course it comes after verse 10, which says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. It's a lovely promise, but initially it's a promise to the exiles. It's a promise for them to come back. It's not prosperity for everyone, it's a return of battle all land for the people. But it looks good on the calendar, so you get a lot on uh, those sorts of things. But now the book majorly shifts gears after this letter to the exile, and we're given a brief glimpse of what lies ahead after the exile. But I will warn you, it's only a brief glimpse. So point three, God will make a new covenant with his people. God will make a new covenant with his people. God promises a return from the exile, and he promises a glorious future. Again, he promises a new David who will reign over his people. He will not break his promise to King David that he will have a man on the throne. He promises to turn their mourning into joy. He promises that the city will be rebuilt. He promises to bring them home from exile and gather them together. And here we begin to see prophecies alluding to the Lord Jesus. So Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Rama. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Here, if you think about it in the terms of the exile, it's to do with those that they've lost. But Matthew links it then to the great murder that uh, uh, Herod the Great uh, did of the children of Bethlehem. It's actually looking forward to a time ahead. In the same section, he speaks of the people as his dear son, who he will have mercy on. And then most famously of all in Jeremiah, God promises a new covenant in chapter 31. If you want to know more about the New Covenant, I suggest you read Hebrews, uh, because that gives you a, an extended uh, commentary, really, on this passage, and this passage is quoted at length. But it speaks of God's law being put into our hearts, of the forgiveness of sin, of the knowledge of God spreading far and wide. It's a great promise of a new beginning that we experience in Christ. And in this section, Jeremiah is told to buy land, even though the cities are under siege. It's like the worst time to buy, isn't it? Because it's going to be taken away. But it's a solid promise that they will return home and possess the land again. And that's your glimpse. That's what you get in Jeremiah. The little sort of glimpse of niceness in amidst all the weeping. And the glimpse is gone. And then for the last section, we're back on the judgment. So in the meanwhile, God will judge his people and the nations from 34 to 52. 
First of all, God returns to talking about Judah in 34 to 45. Zedekiah, the final king of Judah, he says, prophesies, will die in peace, but in Babylon. Jeremiah tells Zedekiah this when Jerusalem is under siege. You get to imagine that didn't make him too popular. Earlier in, uh, in time, but later in the book, Jeremiah has a scroll of his prophecy about the exile, read by his assistant at the temple. At this point, Jeremiah, the prophet, had been banned from the temple. So he had to send his assistant to go, uh, to go read it. The king takes Jer- uh, Jehoiakim, takes his scroll and burns it. So Jeremiah makes another one and, uh, and preaches it again. There's a temporary respite in this section from the Babylonians as the Egyptians begin to take them on. But Jeremiah prophesies that they'll be back and they will come and take them into exile. And at this point he's accused with collaborating with the Babylonians. He's questioned by the king and he's thrown in prison. Eventually he's thrown in a cistern. A cistern with no water or food, just mud. He's rescued in the end with the king's commission by an Ethiopian eunuch, interestingly, called Ebed Melech. He's taken out of the system and he's put back in prison. Jeremiah, sorry, Jerusalem finally falls for the final time in chapter 39. Jeremiah is protected at the command of Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah has his son slaughtered in front of his eyes and his eyes then put out so that's the last thing that he sees. He's taken away in chains to Babylon and a governor is appointed in his place. You might think, okay, end of story. No. The governor is assassinated by supporters of the king. And the assassins ask Jeremiah what they should do. So he prays and he tells them to stay in Judah. Whatever you do, don't leave the country. Don't go to Egypt, Babylon's rival. So guess what? They go to Egypt and they take Jeremiah with them. The Lord speaks though through Jeremiah and pronounces judgment on the runaways. And then he begins to pronounce judgment on the nations, starting with Egypt. And what follows almost until the end of the book is a series of judgments on the nations. Judgment on Egypt, chapter 46. Judgment on the Philistines, chapter 47. Judgment on Moab, chapter 48. And then judgment on Ammon, Damascus, Kedar and Hazor, chapter 49. All the nations will be destroyed here by either Egypt or Babylon. We're told as we go through that this is how that came about. So it's history to us now. But it starts with the destruction of Egypt and it ends with the destruction of Babylon in chapters 50 and 51. The nation that God had used to judge the others will itself be judged for the evil that it's committed. And the book finishes by returning to the fall of Jerusalem, so it takes you back a little bit in time. More detail is given about what happened, the burning of the temple, the removal of the people. But there is a twist at the end of the book. Or at least, it's like those bits that you get now in films where they get to do a bit after the credits, and it sort of like gives you an extra bit that might lead to a sequel. They sort of do it all the time now. This is the end of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 52, 31 to 34. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, Ebal Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year he became king, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garment, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king 
according to his daily need until the day of his death, as long as he lived. Zedekiah's kids might be dead, but David's line continues. Jehoiachin is still alive, and he's being looked after quite well in Babylon. He had another name as well in the Bible. He's also known as Jeconiah. Jeconiah, we're told in Matthew 1, had a son called Shealtiel, who had a son called Zerubbabel, who had a son called Abiud. Quite a lot of sons. It goes on and on. Eventually, who had Jacob, who had Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, the adopted father of Jesus. The book actually finishes with the hope that the Davidic line will continue. And you know what? It did. It went all the way to Christ. Of course, the book points to Christ in other ways, especially in the ways it establishes the prophet as a sufferer, as Christ was, the one who unjustly suffers. Which again, is not cheerful, but true. Jeremiah reminds us of God's judgment, but it also then points us to the one who took that punishment, who took that judgment for us, Christ. And it challenges us then not to downplay our sin, and not to downplay God's judgment. It's horrific as you go through the book. We're to take those things seriously. Our sin is worse than we imagine. God's judgment is worse than we imagine. But the cross is more powerful than we imagine. His mercy is greater than we imagine. And God is more loving than we imagine. And that means that actually this new covenant that it speaks of, that we have in Christ, is much better than we can imagine. It brings us to God and it deals with God's judgment, as we see in the book of Jeremiah. So let's praise God for his great mercy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that although your judgment is real, Father, although our sin is real, Father, thank you that Jesus took it for us on the cross. Father, thank you that that one who was born in the line of David that continues was able to offer forgiveness to us by his own death. Father, thank you that he suffered unjustly, that we might live, that we might be rescued, that we might enjoy that new covenant that was made in his blood. We thank you for him in his name. Amen.